Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're very happy to welcome Jorge Velasco back to the show. He is a regular Young Voices contributor. And Jorge, I'm going to ask you to uh, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself before we delve into your article. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Brian, once again. Um, So I have interned for two U.S. members of Congress, uh, while at the same time writing for The Daily Caller, being a contributor for Young Voices, um, and looking forward to interning for the American Conservation Coalition uh, during the summer of 2022. Yeah, no grass is going to be growing under your feet these days. <laughs> You're going to stay busy. <laughs> I, Just trying to continue as hard as I can. I have seen a lot of uh, a lot of teasing and maybe even a little bit of uh, celebrating on Twitter about uh, CNN Plus being a very, very short-lived venture. And I've got your article here about how CNN Plus is another sign of a crumbling legacy media. And I wonder, Jorge, could you start by, walk us through the process. I mean, I never watched CNN Plus, so it it wasn't a great loss to me personally, but what was the thinking behind it? Why was it launched? What did they hope to accomplish? And more importantly, why did it fail? Yeah, Brian, you know, a lot of other people did not watch uh, CNN Plus which is one of the main reasons why it failed in the first place. Um, You know, Brian, this might go down as one of, um, if not the biggest failures seen in digitized media. Uh, The idea of CNN Plus, which would have brought subscribers, you know, original viewing content, exclusive interviews and whatnot, originated from uh, former CNN president Jeff Zucker, who resigned earlier this year uh, after disclosing an affair he had with a work colleague. So things quickly got complicated for uh, projections of CNN Plus when uh, CNN was, you know, launched just before, uh, just weeks before their merger was finalized with Warner Bros. And um, and incoming executives thought it was it was a bad idea. Projections were very skewed. And so after the merger was finalized, the incoming executives decided, you know, in terms of success, CNN Plus was anything but a successful and new revenue stream for for the company, which is why it was shut down in the first place. Ouch. I mean, that's $300 million that essentially has just vanished into the wind. And it wasn't because, you know, they, they were having a bunch of unknowns. I mean, there were some fairly, fairly familiar names, right, that were there to, to help, you know, bring recognition to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, in December of 2021, Fox News' Chris Wallace, who had been at the company for almost 20 years doing Fox News Sunday, um, you know, he was brought on for a couple million dollars, a five-year contract. And, you know, at the moment, CNN Plus on paper was a very mediocre product at best. Um, at the moment, you know, the name of the game for multimedia in the post-COVID world is trying to find a way to bring in more revenue besides traditional cable news, specifically for CNN. So when we're looking at services um, and on this at paper, you know, incredibly successful streaming services have brought on tens of millions of subscribers like, you know, uh, HBO Max, Peacock, you name it, due to their very successful marketability. Uh, But CNN Plus was very doomed from the get-go, you know, in terms of, um, you know, time span and what we were looking at for CNN Plus. In just less than three weeks, CNN had injected, like you mentioned, more than $300 million for a completely unmarketed premium product. And so, in fact, you know, CNN had projected to have one to two million subscribers by the end of the year, but only had around 150,000 
by the end of the first month, even after launching on Roku and other very big platforms. Now, Jorge, in your column on spectator.org, you make a pretty solid case that this is an indication of a much bigger problem that legacy media is is facing. And to say that numbers are falling doesn't begin to, to describe what's actually happening with legacy media. Um, flesh that out for us. What, what exactly are we seeing happen to not just CNN Plus, but much of the legacy media? Sure. Um, You know, I would preface it with this, Brian. Uh, I really wouldn't get it twisted in terms of talking about CNN specifically. You know, the the media outlet still holds incredibly strong institutional power against other networks. And whether you like it or not, it's still a household name for many and will probably be carried on that way for for years and decades to come. Um, You know, the only way they'll get out of this hole, both financially and by trying to renew their legitimacy, is to brainstorm many new strategies, which is, you know, for the most part, why they brought on and merged with Warner Bros to bring in new strategies, new ideas um, other than CNN Plus to try and, 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 you know, streamline more efficient products to bring in more revenue streams. Um, You know, on top of that, they are trying to bring back um, the objectiveness that they had in the late 90s, early 2000s, before Trump, you know, ran for election in 2015 and onward. So, yeah, in terms of talking about, um, you know, the media legacy and kind of the mainstream media and the way they have been operating for the last half century, um, I think it's going to take a lot uh, for, you know, like CNN and other independent media outlets to try and revamp their image to bring more objectiveness, more, you know, new ideas rather than just um, talking about and and bringing up the same policies and and topics that have been going on for the 24-7 media, you know, news coverage. I see your point in that CNN really does have reach in the sense that I don't think there's an airport in the country you can go into where the TVs aren't, you know, airing CNN. But sure. at the same time, the credibility, not just of CNN, but, but mainstream media in general, has taken a real beating. And, and th- through much of the Trump presidency, especially through the COVID situation, it seems that uh, the media has shown itself to be something less than uh, an impartial, fair and objective source of, of truth. You know, Brian, uh, CNN's credibility has been completely ravaged ever since Donald Trump declared his candidacy in 2015 with its extremely skewed coverage. Um, On top of this, they've dealt with Zucker's resignation, Chris Cuomo's special access to rare COVID testing just at the height of of the pandemic, and Cuomo's allegations of sexual harassment all within just a year's time. And so in the meantime, you know, CNN's total viewership has plummeted by 90 percent since the beginning of 2022 compared to 2021, while, you know, rival networks like Fox News and MSNBC have thrived. So. You know, it's it sounds very shocking when you say it out loud, uh, but that is not to say, you know, compared to my previous point that they don't hold some sort of firepower that they've been you know, creating and building up for the last 20, 30, even 40 years when they began first began with the likes of even Tucker Carlson wearing his famous bow tie. Um, at, you know, all these remember that for sure. But, you know, at the same time, it's, it's very important to keep in mind that. Um, Their credibility is everything, and that's what, at the end of the day, will keep them running as a media outlet. Well, as you mentioned in your article, it seems like the hyper-politicized coverage is is part of the problem uh, because credibility is shed in order to maintain, you know, this political point of view or to support this or or that political point of view. Does this provide incentive for them to revisit that or 
Are we likely to see what we saw in the wake of, for instance, Trump's 2016 win when much of the media was like, how could this have happened? And instead of saying, man, we got it wrong, we called it wrong, they doubled down and essentially portrayed it as, well, this just proves the public is too stupid to know what's good for them. And we've got to, you know, tell them, tell them, you know, where they went wrong. Yeah, Brian, you know, that's that's been CNN's mindset ever since, like I mentioned, Trump declared his candidacy in 2015. Um, I think a lot has to be said about keeping the likes of Don Lemon, um, Chris Cuomo until he was fired um, on the air until, you know, just this year. Right. And so with the likes of Don Lemon and, and, and others, um, it's it's very troubling to see that, um, you know, institutionalized anchors like Lemon have continue to, you know, skew their coverage, their opinions and, and editorialize um, you know, a lot of their of their you know branding in terms of what they want to push and how they want to create themselves as a public figure. Um, you know, like I said, CNN has long been an objective outlet um, and it, it wouldn't be a very new thing if they were to try and revamp their image to bring themselves back to, you know, center of left, maybe even just a very independent outlet like the AP or Reuters um, and try and, you know, bring in a new image that a lot of viewers and Americans haven't seen for for years, um, ever since, like I said, Tucker Carlson wore his famous bow tie. <laughs> no, look, I, I remember the days when CNN was first starting, and I mean, you know, 30-plus years ago when they were uh, becoming a 24-hour news network, when the first Gulf War took place. That's where everybody tuned, because they had round-the-clock coverage. But, um, you know, the the incident, you, you talk about this in the story, Nicholas Sandman, who was, uh, you know, portrayed as, as some kind of a racist troublemaker, you know, a, a few years ago. He sued CNN and apparently uh, won a pretty nice settlement in the process. Yeah, absolutely. And not only did he settle with CNN, he settled with other media outlets like the likes of Washington Post. That's a very familiar name to everybody these days. And so when we're talking about the specific uh, situation that happened on the mall, um, you know, CNN, the network itself was aware of no wrongdoings by um, Nick Sandman back when he was just a high schooler with his with his fellow classmates in 2019. Um, they intentionally spread false information uh, when they reported that the group Sandman was with had clashed with, quote unquote, four African-American young men preaching about the Bible and oppression. On top of this, they continue to push famous videos of of him trying to go face to face with with someone who is just beating a drum at the moment trying to you know just sing along Jorge, and i've got to jump it, in here because we are up against the clock thank you so much for being my guest i'll include links to your social media in the show notes thanks again for joining us thanks for having me brian Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Grace Bidalic back to the show. She joins us as a Young Voices contributor. And actually, uh, Grace, you have a lot going on at any given time. Tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Sure, absolutely. Brian, thank you so much for having me back on. Um, I am a writer and a performer based in the New York City area. Um, I'm also writing uh, theatrical reviews for the New York Sun. And my friend and I have been planning an arts exhibition that is coming to the city to downtown Williamsburg uh, this Friday and Saturday. So that is everything that's on my plate at the current moment. 
I'm looking at an amazing article that you wrote for the AmericanConservative.com. Cemeteries remind us of the importance of religion. And I have to confess this to you, Grace. As a kid, my least favorite holiday was Memorial Day because that's when, you know, the family would get together and we'd go to the cemetery and I'd be bored out of my skull watching, you know, relatives gather and put flowers on graves and and they'd sit and talk and everybody had really a wonderful time. Well, except for me because I didn't understand the significance. You bring up some really insightful ideas about uh, the value of the cemetery where where do we begin on a topic like this yeah i mean it sounds like you've you've always kind of loved cemeteries yeah i have thank you so much for your fascination with the article um this article really started with my fascination surrounding cemeteries i would make my family or my boyfriend or my friends pull over if i saw a particularly fascinating one out the window and i actually even wrote an album uh, called Summit Grove Cemetery about a cemetery, a pioneer cemetery, actually, that I found in rural Nebraska during quarantine. And I couldn't verbalize why I was so fascinated with these cemeteries at first. But then I took a deeper look at the culture and I found that cemeteries put things in perspective, right? So the world is disorienting and it's heavy and it's confusing and it's small, but cemeteries are not. They are really a respite, I've learned from this confusion. And they're actually, in many ways, advocates for natural order. You know, as I look around us and I see so many aspects of our culture um, either just disappearing from disuse or actually being disappeared down the memory hole, um, cemeteries still remain a place where you can can really gain an appreciation of culture. Why is that? Yeah. So if you look at the headstones, right, they reveal a really distilled list of things that were important to people that have passed. They reveal what roles have imbued people's lives with purpose. So if you look, you'll see uh, words like family and country and father and mother and sister and brother and husband and wife and soldier and friend. And in a world of really unnecessary superlatives, as we see in culture, um, these were all that mattered in a world where we place so much emphasis on defining ourselves Um, and defining our own identities. These were identities that were given to these people um, as duties, really. Um, And that's something that we're really losing in our in our culture today. Yeah, something you pointed out in your article, and this this just really struck me as a great observation, is that, um, for instance, today, young people tend to define themselves by very different standards than what you'd see on a person's headstone. You know, um, in fact, give us some of the, the, the criteria or the titles by which uh, young people today might be tempted to define themselves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I was actually listening to a Tim Keller podcast. Do you know who Tim Keller is? Yeah. So the Presbyterian preacher um, based out of New York City who started Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And he has this fantastic series called Questioning Christianity. And it's all about um, this episode in particular that came out this morning was all about identity and the ways that religion will bring uh, a different sense of identity to your lives. Um, But he talks about how religion fosters an identity. Again, that's from the outside in and modern culture fosters an identity, a sense of identity that's from the inside out. So you are defining yourselves or yourself by, by anything other 
than what the world is defining you as. You're defining yourself by your sexual orientation or your relationships or your career aspirations or by your education. And today we really even receive societal approval from our parents and from social media for shirking these roles that, that have been driven by duty or morality and have been time tested. And and you point out that the reason young people kind of uh, gravitate towards defining themselves by these these uh, characteristics, you know, th- there's more freedom to do so than there's ever been before. So they ought to be happy or at least happier than they've been. But that's not the case, is it? That, unfortunately, is not the case. Right. And we've seen uh, a, a slew of damning articles come out in The New York Times and in The Atlantic that actually document a cultural trend that really anybody with eyes can see, right? American adolescence is changing for the worse. And these teens, these children even, are deeply depressed. So if we look at the stats, um, from 2009 to 2021, American high schoolers who reported feeling persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose steeply from 26% to 44%. And this is an even more alarming statistic to me. In 2018, suicide was the second leading cause of death amongst 10 to 24-year-olds. So I'm going to say that again. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among 10-year-olds to 24-year-olds. A really devastating statistic. See, I've heard people say that uh, a lot of the the sadness or the depression among young people uh, is uh, rooted in a, a lack of meaning. And I have to give you credit. Your your article, I think, really made that connection for. But what kind of meaning are we talking about? You point out how, you know, when you look to some of these gravestones in, in a cemetery, you'll see things like a Star of David or a cross right. or, or things that, right. that, that, you know, this was a child of God. That's some real meaning as opposed to some of the more superficial meanings that, that we tend to define ourselves by sometimes. Right. Absolutely. So we've seen in multiple studies, right, what does it cost when we lose, lose our religion. So it costs us, it costs us our health. And according to researchers at the Mayo Clinic, uh, most studies have shown that religious involvement and spirituality are actually associated with better mental health outcomes, including, as they say, greater longevity and coping skills and quality of life, even during terminal illness, less anxiety, less depression, and less suicide. Um, and, Researchers at Duke University concluded that the religion focused on God or an external locus of control. Religious people actually have a stronger sense of internal control um, because as people pray and ask God for guidance, uh, they feel a sense of control over their own situation and ability to uh, help them cope with depression and with anxiety. Something you point out, too, that, again, I, this is just such a, a great observation is um Something will be the God of our hearts. You know, people, people want that autonomy. I'm going to be me and I'm going to do my thing. But, but inevitably, inevitably rather, something becomes the central focus of their lives, doesn't it? Right. Right. That's true. And I know that in my own life, when the God of my heart is me, I am having a significantly worse time. (laughs) So let's let's bring this home. Um, you, you mentioned how cemeteries remind us of the importance of religion. How can the dead help us uh, maintain those religious roots or those religious connections, even though, uh, you know, their lives have ceased and all that's left is, you know, a name, maybe some dates, maybe a word or two to define that person's life. How does that connect us 
to religion. Sure, sure, absolutely. As you pointed out earlier, these gravestones that we see, um, specifically that I saw in the summer of 2020 in the old Pioneer Cemetery up on a hill in rural Nebraska, was these gravestones that were littered with religious signifiers, right? So in this way, the dead speak to us. They talk about um, the importance of duty, the importance of spirituality, the importance of religion, the importance of family, the importance of these Judeo-Christian values, right? Um, the importance of the family structure and how all of these things are actually central to how one perceives the world and his or her role in it. I love it. And, and as you put in the article, it's just... This, this reminds us that there is hope. Grace Bedalek, right. thank you so much for being our guest today. Um, we'll have a link to your article in the show notes. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Young Voices contributor Corey Walker to the program. Corey, I'd love to have you tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Um, there's really not that much to know about me. I'm just, uh, from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I uh, went to University of Michigan. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't really do anything interesting. I'm just really interested in, like, policy, law. Um, just things that I think impact me, particularly in urban areas. And so um, I think cash bail reform uh, definitely ties in very neatly to a lot of the research that I do. Yeah, I'm looking at an article you wrote about uh, how cash bail reform is desperately needed. Now, people who may have not had much uh, experience with the criminal justice system, um, I know for for people who haven't had a loved one go through it or haven't been through it themselves, it's a very abstract thing, and and really they they don't even – begin to have an inkling of what it's like but talk to me about the the immense number of people who are sitting in jail right now not having been convicted of a crime but are simply awaiting trial why are they there in the first place well as of as of now um about 445,000 innocent people are currently in uh pre-trial jail right and that's 67 percent of our jail population as you all know america has a very large uh, jail population. Uh, we're one of the most incarcerated countries on earth. So people end up there for all types of reasons, uh, ranging from petty crime to violent crime. But the reality is, is that these are people who have not really been convicted uh, of a crime yet. So um, there's a lot of question about whether or not uh, their civil liberties are being violated in the sense that they um, are held in, in jail, um, times, even if without bond, but even with bond, uh, should they be forced to pay uh, the state uh, for their own freedom when you haven't convicted them of anything? And I think that's a, uh, it's a very uh, important and emerging question in the criminal justice reform space. Yeah, I mean, in your article, you point out these are people who just couldn't afford to post bail. And, and, and what kind right. of amounts are we talking? We're not talking huge, you know, million-dollar cash bail. We're talking much smaller amounts, but still – um, you know, these people are not able to come up with, you know, what are, what are some of the amounts that we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, it can range from a couple of thousand to two thousand twenty five hundred dollars. Um, it can range to two hundred dollars. Um, there's a lot of people in America who, unfortunately, for one reason or another, cannot afford to put up that kind of money or uh, 
even if you know um they they personally can it or their family can they may choose not to for whatever reason and it, it essentially creates a system in which there's like a two-tier justice system for people who are who come from means and can afford to buy the way out of the the system in jail and for those who don't and they're put in, in jail for arbitrary amounts of time uh based on the fact that they don't they don't have the means to be able to afford to buy themselves out. So, I mean, a lot of times you're talking about a couple of hundred dollars, but you have to think about the fact that we live in a country where many Americans, if not most, cannot afford a five hundred dollar emergency. So when you talk about, you know, you know, you're in a situation where you need a couple hundred dollars to get yourself out of prison. And a lot of criminals come from poor backgrounds. They may be poor. They may have a poor family. They may not be able to be in a position to, uh, to put, put themselves out, to bail themselves out, even if it's a couple hundred. I had a good friend who was a sheriff's deputy and uh, spent a lot of time as a bailiff in the court system. Mm-hmm. And one day at lunch, he was telling me, he says, I, this is one thing I've learned from all the years I've spent standing in the courtroom. He said, you get as much justice as you can afford. And at the yeah. time that struck me as, wow, that's kind of cynical. <laughs> but in well, light sure. of what, what you're describing here. I don't think he's. I don't think he was exaggerating. I think that that actually reflects a truth that may not be popular and it may not be a comfortable truth, but it seems like the truth nonetheless. Yeah, it's the truth. I mean, we live in a two-tier justice system where the rich get the best representation, the rich are able to buy themselves out of consequence, um, and it's unfortunate. But I don't think it's shocking to anyone that you know understands the way that not just the criminal justice system works, but in many cases just our broader society where wealthy people have access to better um, situations and better circumstances. Um, And I I think that that the criminal justice system is uh, probably the most glaring uh, example of that. But let's be honest, a lot of people who end up in prison for extended amounts of time um, are the most vulnerable members of our society. So they don't have the power uh, or the voices to be able to make themselves heard. Well, and and as you point out in your article, it can also further complicate, complicate rather already complicated circumstances by by taking them out of the the position of being a provider or being an influence in their home. Talk to me about the March twenty twenty two study about the hidden costs of pretrial jail revisited. What did they learn in that study? Yeah, so they learned uh, quite a bit. But the thing is, is that these sorts of uh, practices in terms of cash bail are not really good at preventing crime, right? Um, there's no predictable societal outcome from keeping people uh, in prison or jail before trial. And so what's really the purpose here, right? Like we have to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of our criminal justice system? Is it just simply to punish people so we feel good about ourselves and we feel morally righteous, or is it to make a safer society? And I think that what it does is that what we see is that it kind of feeds into a cycle of which, you know, people may have committed a crime, may or may not have, they get put in the system, but they're actually more likely to commit crimes after they're released uh, from the system than through other uh, alternatives. And so it really does nothing to solve the core issues, right? Um, So if you're more likely to be convicted than those who aren't uh, put through the through a cash bail system, we have to ask ourselves, you know, why exactly are we doing this? Um, you know, and a lot of people, like I said, are the most vulnerable who fall prey to this. So even spending a few days in jail can lead to things like, for example, loss of employment, loss of shelter, um, losing the custody of your children. All of those things then lead into, like I said, other larger issues that may lead you to commit more crimes. So I think that 
um, we have to really question um, what is the purpose of this if it's making our criminal justice system worse and our society less safe. Let's talk about some of the solutions. Yeah, I mean, so I think that there's quite a few solutions that we can really think about. Um, One thing that I did outline in an article is giving uh, suspects a presumption of release, which means that um, the onus should be put on the prosecutors to produce the evidence that uh, would lead someone to be put in jail behind bars or to be put to put to um, put them up for bail. And so the thing is, is that if you if we can go into the justice system while giving uh, suspects the kind of more or less benefit of the doubt. Um, and in terms of, you know, in, in increasing the amount of evidence necessary, or at least not increasing the amount, but at least telling prosecutors that you have to even produce evidence uh, to put them behind bars, that would actually uh, go a long ways in regards to uh, helping to eliminate cash bail system and maybe putting people behind bars that are truly a danger to society. And I agree those people need to be behind bars. But for people who are not really um, a threat to us, um, I think that really does a lot to give those people justice. Um, another option may be an unsecured b- uh, bond program. And those those programs like uh, criminal defendants uh, would be able to leave uh, without paying bail uh, under the uh, agreement that they return for their trial date. And if they do return for the trial date, obviously they don't have to pay. But if they don't return for their trial date, then they start getting fees and fines and and uh, start getting a punishment. So that kind of gives them an incentive to come back because a lot of people are kind of worried that if we don't uh, have the cash bail system, then you know criminal defendants may not. Uh, may may not come back for their trial. So um, I, I think that that is the way that I see it, um, the way I see it go for, going forward for us to be able to uh, reduce or eliminate cash bail while still keeping a functional criminal justice system that keeps us safe. Corey, it seems like this would also um, maintain the those jail resources. You know, there's a limited number of beds or cells or, uh, you know, basically places to put people. It would keep those things available for people who really needed to be kept out of society. In other words, it makes society safer yeah. because this person's off the streets as opposed to the person who, you know, is is a first time offender or nonviolent offender and, and is going to show up for their trial. I mean, I think you make a yeah, great I- case here. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, like I said, a lot of this comes down to what we think the criminal justice system should be. There are many people that think the criminal justice system should be about punishing people, making people feel uh, regret, remorse, um, or paying some sort of penance. I'm someone that believes that the criminal justice system should work to make our society safer. And when you put people behind bars that, quite frankly, may have made a mistake, may have did something stupid, um, may have been in a tough situation, but ultimately they didn't really hurt anyone uh, physically or irreparably. It doesn't make sense because in most cases they become much more hardened criminals, uh, get even more, in, like I said, deeper into crime and more violent crime. And that just hurts our society uh, much more. So we definitely need to rethink about rethink the ways that we approach these sorts of situations. That doesn't mean be soft on crime. It means to be smarter on crime and how we deal with it. Corey, I appreciate how you are raising some of these alternatives and pointing out that we have options that that aren't being exercised yet. Where can people follow you and where can they find your writing? 
So I write at Young Voices. Uh, well, I write with uh, I'm with the Young Voices organization. Um, at most of my writings at Exponents Magazine, um, and I've also done a lot of writing with Reason. Um, you can follow me at Corey Writing, which is my uh, Twitter handle, and all my writing and all my stuff um, will be there. Okay, Corey Walker, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is our final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're pleased to welcome Mike Holmes, who is a Young Voices contributor to the show. Uh, Mike, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Hey, my name is Mike Holmes. Uh, Kind of a policy nerd, interested in foreign affairs, and also fascinated by immigration policy. And uh, that's largely what I work on with Young Voices. Yeah. Now, immigration policy, that's I mean, there's some thin ice there in that there are people who uh, who are very um, engaged on this and sometimes frustrated with it on all sides of the political spectrum. Talk to me about uh, some of the biggest needs that you see or some of the biggest challenges regarding immigration policy. And then let's let's talk about some of the solutions that that might be worth examining. Absolutely. So I think that. And you're right. It's a very polarized topic or seems to be polarized topic because there's a lot of important things that are wrapped up in this. You have concerns over welfare of immigrants themselves. You have concerns over the economic effect in the United States. You have concerns over what it means for rule of law in the United States. And so you have all these issues that are kind of coming together they also get very nitty gritty when you get into like visas like that's you have the entire alphabet worth of visas <laughs> that having an opinion on immigration doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to fix a certain visa problem so i think from the public there's a lot to grasp but then also for the politicians there's a lot to tackle too and so some of the bigger issues some of the two biggest ones that come up Um, that whenever you hear comprehensive immigration reform, uh, you'll generally hear a focus on the unauthorized population that's currently in the U.S. and then also uh, issues with border security, both, yeah, border security for the southern border, also the northern border, but then also kind of what to do with interior enforcement as well. And so those are generally the main, those are the major broad sticking points with policy. So what uh, what do you see as, in your opinion, merits the highest priority in terms of uh, where, where reform is needed sooner than later? So I think this is somewhat complicated in the sense that you'll see year after year, you'll have policy that gets thrown, thrown into the Senate, thrown into the House. It might get through one of them only to get turned down in the next or not even heard. So I think one one of the important things to look at is maybe not necessarily what I ideally want, but what's possible. And recently in April, the organization Echelon Insights, they released their April omnibus poll where they focused a lot on immigration. And there was a few areas that showed high levels of agreement, um, like 70 percent or more of the populace, 70 uh, percent or more wanted to increase border security. Uh, have stricter enforcement of interior policies. So like um, basically if you overstayed visas, stricter policies with that and preventing that in the future, 
75% were opposed to open borders, but then also 70% were in favor of DACA relief, which that is relief for those who were brought to the United States as minors. Um, it started in 2012. That's been a hot, bus, hot button issue as well. But that has about 70% support of the populace, but then also bipartisan support as well. And so I think sometimes tackling a small issue within those fields is the way to start the conversation off. And some of that's already going on, but I think those are important areas to look at. Sometimes it seems as though, um, particularly the border issue, um, we're, we're, I feel like we're given a false choice in that it's got to be this extreme or it's got to be that extreme. We either have a border that's as secure as North Korea or we just open it up and we let anybody waltz in here. You know, um, Is there a middle ground that can be found there? I think there is. Um, and... I think it is a challenge, though, too, just because it's there's a lot of issues that go with the border. There's experts that say we don't have a good definition of what border security means. And so it's hard to achieve a goal where you're not even sure what you're aiming for. But I think that there is a possibility of finding some some middle ground, like even if you are like myself, like think that more immigration is good. If you aren't going for open borders, you kind of have to set the you have to set a limit somewhere. And so I think we want to emphasize the humane aspects on humane aspect of treating treating everyone at the border with human dignity, but then also finding the best ways to achieve the goals that we actually want. And some of that requires discussion, although I do think I do think there are some areas that are well, while border security is a goal that we need to pursue, and you can hire more, you can hire more border security. Although that is that has it comes with its own challenges too. Um, facing issues like DACA relief for people that are already here, there is an important aspect to that too. That you can, because there is bipartisan support, sometimes those victories could actually be an important step in building trust in some of the bigger bigger issues. And so sometimes maybe tackling DACA with with a few other things that give people confidence at the border, even with interior security, uh, can maybe allow us to take a few steps forward. What are the reasons that uh, that we see people coming, wanting to immigrate to this country? Did the Echelon Insight study um, offer any insight into what it is that actually brings people here in the first place? So that didn't that study in particular did not focus on that. It was more U.S. opinion polling. Okay. But from the draws to the United States, there's actually quite a few. And this is actually one of the challenges to figuring out immigration policy, because the, the draws can change yearly. However, there's a few there's a few big ones. One, there's an economic draw. Uh, the because of the U.S. Institu- because of U.S. institutions and our workforce, everything like that, people are generally more productive here than they are in their own country. And that's what some scholars refer to as the place premium, that merely by doing the same job here, they can sometimes make double or triple what their salary was in their home country. So that's a major incentive to come. Uh, But then you also have people that are fleeing political persecution, generalized violence, um, and people generally seeking a better life or just fleeing poverty in general. And so you have just multiple reasons uh, that as to why you would want to come. And that can 
And if you're and if you're trying to come up with policy, you have to take into consideration of why people are choosing to come, because that can determine your solution. Because if, say, there's economic migrants, you could say maybe open the valve a little bit more with agricultural visas, seasonal visas, or just more opportunities for green cards. It's a way to divert people away from the border and more towards legal pathways that also generally has significant support, both like agricultural visas and more highly skilled technical visas that like have a lot of support in the U.S. Both of those in the omnibus survey got about 60% or higher um, favorability. And that was also bipartisan support with Republicans, Democrats, and independents all favoring that. Um, so that can, that can push, that can be a draw or that can be a way to divert one of the draws, but then also tackling, tackling some of the complicated issues with asylum, both allowing people to have their cases heard, but finding ways to not let it get into three or four year backlogs that we sometimes see with asylum cases. And cause that can, there are concerns that some people have with what incentives that creates when people have to wait three to four years to get a court, to get their court case heard. Um, there's a lot of debate on that, but as you can kind of tell, that means that there's going to be a lot of complexity in the policy you have to have to come up with. So I know it's a very contentious issue for some people. Are there voices of reason? Have you found that there are some people who are, are striking that uh, that middle ground tone that can actually bring people together on this issue? I do think so. Um, I think that there's I think there's quite a few people out there that want to see want to see good policy i know one i'll just it's off the top of my head i know one one scholar at the hoover institute recently tim kane he came out with a book that's very pro-immigrant but also considers a lot of the a lot of the concerns that people have regarding what people would view as the downsides of immigration and so you have people scholars like him that both write but have influence in policy circles that are trying to strike a balance that's practical, but then also compassionate. But then also there's an element where immigration in many ways is very good for the country. And so pursuing, pursuing immigration and the best policies that benefit everyone, there's plenty of voices out there that want that, even in spite of all the polarization. Yeah, I use the term reflexively, and that does describe there's there's a lot of, you know, reflexive reaction when immigration comes up. I, I applaud you on your, your article about this. Where can people follow your writing? Where can they follow you on social media? So uh, they can follow my writing. I blog a bit at michaelkholmes.com. Uh, I'm also on the Young Voices page for any media hits I have elsewhere. And then my Twitter handle is mkholmes25. All right. Michael Holmes is a contributor for Young Voices, and I really appreciate you being a voice of reason on, on an issue that it's, it's rare to find such voices of reason. Thanks again. Thanks for having me.